Welcome to episode 17 of the Give Us Time podcast, the podcast that highlights the extraordinary members of our armed forces and their families. Today we have a truly inspirational guest. He joined the Royal Marines when he was 17 years old and during his career took part in operational tours to Iraq and Afghanistan. In the early hours of Christmas Eve 2007, during an operational tour to Afghanistan, he stepped and triggered an, an improvised explosive device, resulting in the loss of both legs above the knee and his right arm. This injury did not stop him though. After leaving the military, he's gone on to do some really remarkable things. He was selected to represent Great Britain at the 2017 and 2018 Invictus Games, winning multiple medals, including four gold medals. He went on to release an award-winning autobiography, Man Down, and most recently he was honoured in the Queen's Birthday Honours for 2020, being awarded an NBE for his services to Royal Marines and veterans. We are honoured to welcome Mark Omrod to the podcast. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, mate. It's my pleasure. I mean, so Mark, first of all, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? You know, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Plymouth, uh, which is where I am right now. I've just I picked a quiet location, quite high up, looking over the Plymouth Sound to my left, where I thought I could enjoy the view and enjoy the conversation with yourself, mate. <laughs> so what was it like then growing up in Plymouth? You know, Plymouth is a small city um it's a coastal city it's very military heavy it's very diverse actually there's a huge student population a huge military population a huge civilian population so it was great it was great growing up here on the on the doorstep of cornwall you know if the weather was like it is today more often then you'd never really want to leave this place because there's everything you could ever need here but I loved it. I grew up around the city centre, a little place called Pennycombe Quick, right by the, the train station. Um, also, you know, right at the top of my street, literally as my street ended, started um, one of the main parks in Plymouth, Central Park. So there's green space everywhere. And I just had a great time, mate, growing up. I never needed or wanted anything. Um, you know, I was born in the 80s, raised in the 90s, so I'm out building dens, scuffing my knees, <laughs> getting in little misdemeanors with the law and, you know, all them little things, what what young rambunctious lads do when, when they're growing up. And honestly, no hardships growing up. Every, everything was, was good and was easy. Um, yeah, perfect childhood, I think. Oh, brilliant. So you joined the Royal Marines when you were 17 years old. Was that kind of influenced by... The city, you know, you went and said there's a strong military presence there. Was that an influence in your decision? No, it wasn't actually. Um, and to, to be honest, even with, I think, three Royal Marines bases in the city, I had no idea who the Royal Marines were. You know, I, like I said, I was born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s. I was a big action movie junkie. You know, you see your Schwarzeneggers, Stallones, Van Dams, all these, all these people. I, I kind of idolised them growing up. And all the lads that I grew up with, we all went to the same school. Um, well, 90% of us did. But they were older than I was. They were like two to three years older than me. So as I was coming up towards the end of school, they had already left. And a bunch of them had joined the military and they had gone over to, to Germany with the army they would come home on their leave periods with loads of money they'd be out boozing every weekend brand new cars and they're always doing stuff to keep them 
fit and healthy. And so I, I kind of looked at these movie stars that I idolize. I looked at my friend's lifestyles and I'm like, I think this is where I need to go <laughs> and what I need to do. So I actually, I, I didn't have any idea who the Royal Marines were. And I went down to the career center and because my friends were in the army, they went down with me. We spoke to the recruiter and I got the paperwork when I was 15 and a half to join the army. And it wasn't until I went back because of my age, I had to get my parents to sign it. When um, my dad told me that I had an uncle who had done 22 years in the Royal Marines. He started at the bottom and he left as a captain. Now we only lived 20 miles up the road. So we jumped in the car, uh, we went up to meet him. And then he sat down and he told me about his career in the Royal Marines and how the Royal Marines were different to the, to the army and, and what they're all about. And so I went back to the career center the following Monday, and then I spoke to the Royal Marines recruiter. And this is how long ago it was. He had a, one of those combi TVs with a VCR tape <laughs> deck inside. So I went and I, well, I watched the DVD, the, sorry, the VHS, and I was sold. And I sat back and watched it, and my jaw hit the floor, you know. And I'm just like, who the hell are these guys? You know, they were. They were jumping out of planes. They were, you know, on skis in the Arctic. They were chest high in water in the jungle. You know, they were all on foot. They were on speedboats. They were parachuting. I'm just like, who are these? I, I want to do what these guys are doing because based on all these, these Hollywood movies I've watched growing up, that's what all these guys have done. So I want to do that. <laughs> so that was it. Paperwork, back home, signed a dotted line, finished school. Uh, did my GCSEs, did all right actually, you know, I got, I got 10 GCSEs, I passed them all, nine A to Cs, I only got one D in geography, and the process was started, I got a call just after I left school, uh, inviting me to do the, what back then was a three-day potential Royal Marines course, which is just uh, thrashing, like a three-day solid thrashing to see who gives up and, and weed out the people that aren't quite ready. Passed that, fortunately, never got any injuries. Went home, was given a training program, stuck to it, to the letter, and then got the date to join on February 2001. So, Oh, amazing. What was it yeah. like then being a 17-year-old going into it? I mean, you know, because we, we know you spoke about the, the physicality of it. You know, we've spoken to previous guests. You know, at 17, you're not fully developed in terms of muscles and stuff. I mean, how, how was it? doing you know the training and the and the kind of the induction into that world hey it was horrible i'm, I'm, I'm not gonna <laughs> lie about it second so i looked to the left and to the right and there's these pretty much grown men with so much life experience and i've just you know I mean, i'm still a band it was so intimidating and overwhelming and all i wanted to get in that train go home told me when i was at home do you know what i mean my meals were, you know i was so looked after and now all of a sudden i've got people screaming at me at 5 30 in the morning 64 blokes running around naked panicking trying to wash themselves and shave themselves and you know Everything has to be neat and tidy in a locker. Normally, you just throw it on the floor and your parents pick it up here. And it, it was horrible. And every night of that first two weeks, I wanted to go home. I just I just think to go speak to the guy in charge get on it, and you'll be home within 45 minutes and you can just figure something else out. But for whatever reason, you know, I stuck it out and I saw that two weeks through. And then you move on to the next phase of training. And I kind of... 
that, that was a big lesson for me of, of breaking things down into chunks. You know, 30 weeks as it was back then, it's quite a bit longer now, but 30 weeks was the entire training, which is again, overwhelming to think of in one hit. So I broke it down into chunks, months, weeks, fortnights, days, yeah. hours, whatever I needed to, to, to get through it bit by bit, but it was rough. I mean, yeah, it sounds, it sounds brutal. I mean, to go to, to go for all that, then to pass it and then to become a Royal Marine, what was that like passing and actually becoming a Royal Marine? It was insane. You know, there are, there are key milestones in everyone's life, right? And one of them is your 18th birthday. So I, I, my birthday is the 29th of July. I joined February 2001 as a 17 year old, turned 18 at the end of July. And in October, I had my green beret. So, you know, I was an 18 year old who had just passed the longest, hardest regular forces training in the world. So I literally thought I was one of those action movie stars. You know, my <laughs> chest got like six inches bigger and I walked about six inches taller. And it was just crazy to think that I'm, I'm still basically a boy yeah. at 18, but I've just done this and I've joined this elite brotherhood of men. And everywhere I looked, there were people that were just so much better than me who dragged me up to be a better person and yeah. a more professional professional person and I, and I loved it you know when I came home to Plymouth and I'm sure there were no one ever said it to me but I'm sure there were people that just thought I'd fail it because they know how tough it was yeah so to be able to come back home and you know go from my camp because my first draft was actually in Plymouth as well to Royal Marines headquarters to be able to walk out of my house in my uniform and see people and be like yeah I did it it was just insane man it, it you just it's just something that stays with you forever do you know what i mean it's a, it's a green piece of cloth that you put on your head so in reality anyone can get one but it's what it represents that means so much yeah and people know what you've got to go through to get it and that's where the the massive sense of pride and accomplishment comes from oh amazing i mean so you did, so you passed in what 2002 no, I started February 2001, finished October 2001. I managed oh. to go through in one hit. Oh, amazing. Wow. I mean, you know, um, that must have been massive to your parents, you know, um, especially having, you know, you, you know, a, raw, a previous Royal Marine in the family. How proud of you were they? They must have been so proud. Yeah, I think they were. I, I think everyone was because... And this is one of the things about me, and I, I don't. I was having this conversation yesterday. I don't know if it's a gift or a curse, but a lot of the times I'm quite ignorant to things, as in how <laughs> difficult they are, because I don't bother looking into a lot of things. And so, when I was going through it, although it was hard at the time, I think if I knew how hard it was going to be at the beginning, then that maybe would have convinced me to stop. Yeah. But my, my friends and family are a lot smarter than I am, and, and they do their research and they understand how challenging certain things can be. <laughs> So I think when they saw me overcome that, and especially as well, one of the, the things I'm most proud of is that I did it in one go. Yeah, it's really impressive. You know, I, I never failed anything. I never got injured. I never, you know, there, there are some situations where you can opt out, which basically mm. means you want to leave, but then opt back in. I never did any of that. It was just, for me, it was one hit, clean sweep, straight from the start to the finish. 18 years old, Green Beret, happy days. <laughs> great, that's so great. And then... So obviously that's 2001 then. Um, what 
what was your first operational tour then? So that must have been uh, um, Iraq, Op Herrick. Um, am I right? I I is that correct? Yeah, well, this is the thing. So I finished my training in October 2001, and 9-11 happened like four weeks before. I stood in the canteen. We'd finished all the hard part of training, and basically we're entering the phase where you do all the marching and, and get ready for the big passing out ceremony. Yeah. So we're all, all our morale is high as hell because we know we're not getting thrashed anymore. We're not going to be cold, wet, or hungry for the next month. And then we're all in there stuffing our face with burgers and everything, getting ready to go back and do some marching. And you see 9-11 happen. Yeah. So everyone's like, damn, we're, we're yeah. about to, we've just trained to do this. We're actually about to go and do this. And yeah. there are some people that can serve 15 to 20 years and never do that just yeah. because of the timing of it. They never, they'll never go out to these places. So we're like, again, 18 hyped up, like, damn, we're going to go out straight away and do it. So I passed out of training, um, went straight into pre-deployment training for a tour of Afghanistan in 2002 which was called Operation Jakana. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know why, but I never ended up going. It got really scaled back. I think it turned into more of a special forces type thing. Okay. So a lot of us regular bodies never ended up deploying. But then, yeah, Iraq came around in 2003 on Operation Telic 1. And I was involved. I turned 19 at this point, And I was involved in that initial push over the Kuwaiti Iraqi border into a place called Umm Qasar Naval Base where and then a couple of the lads uh, from 4-2 commando they went up to the palace and the oil fields and, and did their thing and yes yeah, spent three and a half months out in iraq uh, getting my first taste of combat what was it like then that your first taste of combat i mean you know you, we spoke about before you saw you know the films growing up what was it like actually being in that in that environment absolutely nothing like I expected it. it. It was so, I don't know. So I was attached to an army unit um, of medics. So we were like force protection. We would look after medics that were going out to casualties, which I thought would have been quite a tasty little number, mm. but I did nothing. I didn't fire one round. I didn't really come into contact. We come into contact with the enemy a little bit, but there was no, no dust ups or anything. And I actually came back from that tour like, is that it? Is that what being a Royal Marine is about? Because I've done all this training, I've had all this hype, I've seen all this marketing material, I've just been on an operational tour, and it was boring. You know, I've got a good suntan, but I, I came back really disappointed. Yeah. And I was like, okay, cool, right. So I had a look at myself, you know, and I, I do this every once in a while, I have a bit of a shake up and a, a look at my life and where I am and what I want to do. And I thought, I'm 19, I've got a Green Beret, I've been to war. That honestly, that's quite, and, and I, I, when I came back, no, before I even went actually, so I, I did like some Arctic warfare training and all this kind of stuff. So I'd done, I was very lucky that I managed to squeeze a lot of stuff into my first five years. So then I just started considering the future. You know, my, my girlfriend at the time was pregnant with my first daughter, Kezia. She's 16 now. And I decided that I was going to leave. You know, because yeah. I ticked so many boxes, I was going to leave, stay around with, you know, start a new career. Wasn't sure what I was going to do, but be around for my daughter, watch her grow up. And I was only, I was still only 22, I think, at the time. So I thought I got perfect opportunity to start a new career and plenty of time to work my way to the top. So, yeah, I left in 
2006. Um, you know, things didn't really work out how I had planned, so I separated mm. from my daughter's mum, went through a bit of a bit of a bad time. I retrained as a bodyguard in South Africa, spent six weeks out there training, um, thinking I was going to come back and crack the Kevin Costner routine with Whitney Houston, <laughs> running around looking after A-listers, but it's <laughs> absolutely nothing like that at all. Um, but went through a bit of a, a bad period. I, I failed massively as a civilian yeah. and then rejoined the Marines in early 2007. A little bit more mature, a little bit more grown up with a little bit more of a plan about yeah. what I was going to do going forward. I wasn't going to drift through my career and hope things would happen. I was going to get out there and plan it and make them happen this time around. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, wow. I didn't even know that you went and left. I didn't, I didn't go, um, I didn't know that. And then you to then go and, and go back. Um, it just seemed like, you know, you know what you want. I feel like that's like, that's something that's going and coming across in this. You know what you want. And, um, I mean, that's a pretty brave thing to do to, to go and leave and, I mean, to go and do that. So you, you then went and rejoined and you were then, um, deployed to um, Afghanistan then. Um, so is there any retraining when you rejoin? How does that, how does that process work? Rejoining? It depends. So, I'd only been a civilian for about 12 months. And so when you're serving anyway, you've got annual tests, an annual shooting test, fitness test. You know, for some reason, I don't know if they were supposed to do this or they had to do it or they just did it for fun, but they threw me in the CS chamber and made sure that I could do my chemical warfare drills. So yeah. it just made me, just absolutely dosed me with CS gas. <laughs> and because I'd only been a civilian for 12 months, all I had to do was the, the annual tests. I think if you had been, if you had left the military for more than three years, mm. you have to do the entire training package again from start oh. to finish. But literally, it was, it, I was out for such a short amount of time. It was just like being sick and coming back in and yeah. picking up where I left off. So, yeah, it was really easy. I went in um, to the career center, spoke to the, the sergeant major in there. Within four weeks, I was back in uniform. I could have done it in four days, but for some reason, they spaced it out one test a week. Um, over the course of a month and then I was back in and I went to 40 Commando in Taunton and again straight into pre-deployment training but this time for a tour of Afghanistan. I mean we've spoken again with previous guests about the difference of Iraq and Afghanistan. How different did you find it? Totally different worlds, totally different worlds like Afghanistan you're fighting every day like you see the enemy every day you're firefighting every day you're getting shot blown up bombed stabbed whatever it is and when you're not fighting them you're out there just working tirelessly to help the civilians out there you know and protect them um and it was a lot more what i had in mind of, of what conflict was so in a, in a weird kind of way and this is not this is not bravado or you know, me be a match or whatever, it was what I signed up to do. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was the kind of stuff I wanted to do. And it really tests you as as an individual. You, your, your character, I think, comes out in those circumstances when the bullets start flying. Yeah. You know, you find out what you're made of and how you react in the most extreme circumstances. And I loved it. I thrived on it. Yeah. I had so many 
opportunities out there. It sounds it sounds so daft, but for, for like growth as an individual, you know, am I going to run away and cry when I get in a fight, or am I going to take charge of the situation and start leading people? Yeah, you know th- those kind of things, and you know I I enjoyed it, and as weird as that may sound. I mean, yeah, it, I mean, this kind of goes with what we've heard as well, you know, from our previous guests about this, you know, the intensity of Afghanistan. Um, so you, you know, you rejoin in 2007, you're deployed again to Afghanistan in 2007. Um, do you mind telling us, you know, about what happened on Christmas Eve in 2007? Because that is, you know, a life changing moment for you. Yeah, I mean, we had had a good three, three and a half months leading up to Christmas Eve, you know, plenty of fights with the enemy. We'd helped plenty of people and conducted countless numbers of of missions and ops. And then we were going out on a routine foot patrol. And it was quite ironic, really, because we'd been locked up in the camp for a couple of days uh, because we'd lost a couple of men due to silly injuries. Like one fell off a truck and twisted his ankle and some lads had gone gone home on R&R. So we couldn't protect our base and man foot patrols so when Mm. we got the the manpower up we went out on a foot patrol and the whole idea of it was leave the the back entrance of the camp in two sections patrol around the camp don't go any more than 300 meters and then meet at the front of the camp and then come back in it was literally to get us out and to, to stretch our legs there was no real objective no real mission like there had been before and we were only out there for a couple of hours but i was second in command of one of the sections and as we were finishing up our section were on some high ground and the other section weren't so you know being on high ground is it's advantageous tactically and you know from a fighting point of view it's easier to fight down a hill than up yeah. now we could see everything around us so we were going to give protection what we call overwatch mm. for this other section they were going to peel back into the camp get behind the perimeter wall and then return the favor so that they would protect us while we came off the high feature. It's all, all, all basic standard stuff. Mm. And the man in charge, he took half the section and started giving them fire positions to protect the other section. I took my half of the section and started doing the same. When everyone was happy, you know, I was stood back observing, doing some final checks. When they all gave me the thumbs up, I went over to my position to get down on my belly and take up uh, a fire position to protect the other section and as i put my right knee on the floor i knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device oh i mean do you mind explaining what happened after the sorry you know i know you know you don't have to if you don't want to no it's cool mate it's cool um so you have to you have to imagine the terrain in Afghanistan, right? It's very sandy, very dusty. So this device exploded and this huge dust cloud is created, right? So you're, you're temporarily blinded. You have no idea what's going on. And I wasn't in any pain. So I had no idea what had just happened. And my gut instinct was that we had been attacked. But I thought someone had fired a rocket or a mortar on our position. My adrenaline spiked, my fight or flights kicked in. And all I'm thinking is, neutralize this threat and get the section out of there safe you know and, and we'll we'll make a call on the ground assess the situation when we can see what's going on and we know everyone's safe now the position that i'd selected for myself i knew that behind me about 600 meters down beneath us 
was a small rectangular forestry block, like a copse of trees. And everything around that area was just flat mud fields. You know, the, the, that was the only place in the terrain that I could think in, the, in that quick couple of seconds that anyone would launch an attack from mm. if they were smart, because they've got cover from view and a, and a little bit of cover from fire. So that was behind me. So in my mind, I'm saying, turn around, turn around, turn around. ID the target, start getting the rounds down. When you find them, everyone will see where you're firing. They'll all stop firing. We had a HMG in camp. So hopefully someone will get on that and they can just tear the forest in half on this heavy machine gun. Now, after about five or six times in my mind of saying, turn around, turn around, turn around. I realized that I wasn't moving. I still couldn't see anything because of the dust cloud. But I realized, you just know, don't you, that... Mm -hmm. You know, your brain's telling your body to do something, but your body's not doing it. And so I waited. And, you know, I was confused. My adrenaline spot, I didn't know what was really happening. So I thought, I'll wait till I can see what's going on, make some calls on the ground, and then take action. So the dust cloud got to about chest level, and I looked around, and I panicked because I was just praying that none of my friends had been hurt or killed. I couldn't see them. I think they'd all been blasted out of the area. So I carried on waiting. And then the dust cloud got to about six inches from the floor. It hit the ground and it dissipated. Mm. Now, as it did, I looked down to where my legs should have been and saw that they had both been completely ripped off from the knees down. Yeah. Now, it's, it's such a bizarre experience because first of all you don't think it's real it's, it's a very surreal experience right what you're looking at and you just see what should have been your legs you see all this blood and claret and fluid pouring out of your body but there's there's no pain mm. it's just a really uncomfortable feeling and so your brain can't process it you know you're looking at like you, I literally sat there thinking, what am I looking at? Why am I not in pain? Okay, maybe this isn't happening. Maybe I'm dreaming this. Maybe I'm having a nightmare back in camp. I'll wake up in a minute and, and all will be good. Anyway, so almost instantly, like two, three seconds after I, I look at this, I, I think about my team. And so I start looking around again. And it's just... You don't know why you do these things. You just do. I just stop looking at it. That's not important. Where's my team? And I look around and I see uh, the section commander, guy that I went through training with, uh, Corporal Sean Halesby. And I kind of just looked at his face and saw the shock in his eyes and, and the lack of colour in his cheeks. And I, I thought about what I just looked at. And I'm like, okay, so maybe what I didn't think was happening is happening. But I still wasn't completely convinced. So I went to look back at my legs. And as I swept the ground with my eyes, I got to like the three o'clock position and I saw my right arm just lying in the sand. You know, it, it was it was still connected, but from my bicep to my wrist, everything had been ripped open. The bone had been shattered. There was just blood and flesh and tissue and muscle hanging out everywhere. And my hand was still intact relatively i think my thumb had been blown off but the rest of my hand looked good and, and I, I picked it up i took my left hand which was still good picked up my right hand 
just kind of held it in front of my face while the rest of it, my arm just flopped. And every, everything kind of came rushing to me at once. Like, you know, all this doubt that I had about what I was looking at was confirmed as, as reality. And I just dropped my hand in the sand and just screamed out in yeah. frustration because my, my thought was, this is the reality of the situation. And I got so angry with myself that I just screamed. And uh, yeah, the, the evacuation happened after that. And, and I knew, as strange as it was, and in the situation I was in, I knew I was going to be okay mm. because I knew how good the guys around me were. And yeah. I knew they wouldn't let me die. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't do anything. I just sat there and waited for the, the machine to kick in, the system to start working, and the lads to go through their drills. Yeah. And they did, like, to absolute perfection and above. You know, everything they did was so slick and so yeah. perfect that they got me out of there quick time. Yeah. And uh, that, combined with the series of events that followed, is why I'm here today, and I can tell the story. Oh, I mean, that's as terrifying. That sounds. I mean, an um, an un, an, an experience. I mean, only you can, you know, you know, you know, could have been through. Um, so you obviously got um taken back to what Camp Bastion, and then from Camp Bastion, you then went back to I'm assuming Birmingham. You know, the main the main yeah. hospital that um was there. I mean, um, what I know, horrible question. You know. How, what was it like seeing your parents again who, who then went and obviously because i mean that's just su such a big experience to be going through yeah i mean initially i got rushed back to camp bastion and there was there were surgeons in a field hospital there that i just had to amputate everything was a mess like hanging off bits and pieces they, they chopped me up there stabilized me sent me home i got back on christmas day in celio and birmingham and then i spent i spent three days unconscious in a coma a drug-induced coma. I was fighting off a lot of infections where I had chunks of flesh ripped off and the sand and dirt had been driven up into my into my wounds, which was getting to my bloodstream. So I had to make sure I didn't die from infections. Mm. And then I spent the rest of the week, another four days on the intensive care ward, just high, high yes. as a kite, like on pain relief. And so it's all a bit of a blur, that, that time frame. I, I do remember meeting Will Smith. No. Oh. Yeah, he came in my room. Th three of them, actually. Three. Of them. <laughs> um, he brought a, an eight-foot bottle of Heinz ketchup with him, and then I would spend my evenings conversing with the guy who wanted to drive a forklift truck around my room for some reason. So just a crazy trip that a whole week on morphine, <laughs> ketamine, whatever else they were pumping into me. Just a crazy time, but. You know, my family were there, my friends uh, would would come and, well, they weren't in that, later on they would come up, but yeah. the team around me, the Royal Marines, the doctors, nurses, physios, surgeons, I just had so many cool people around me that they, they got me through that initial week and they moved me up to the Burns and Plastics ward where they weaned me off the medication. And uh, I honestly think that I had the best experience that anyone in my situation could have asked for, yeah. like across the board. The way they weaned me off the medication was so perfect for me that it allowed me to take my injuries in little by little rather than cold turkey, like take me off and immediately be like, what, what's happened? Yeah. You know, it, 
every day as I was getting more and more into the real world, I was understanding what had happened and it, and it worked for me. And it was no big shock and there was no big reveal. It just worked. And then the way they got me into the physiotherapy as early as possible from a hospital bed worked for me. And the whole the whole process was quite quick. I only did six weeks in hospital. Yeah. You know, and then I was on to rehab. Yeah, so then you went to Headley Court, I'm assuming? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and then obviously to do um, more rehab. And, and, and also, I think... Is it um, is it is it nicer being around soldiers who've got similar injuries? You know, is this is that? I mean, because I mean, all we've heard is just you know, I mean, and to their credit as well, just wonders from Headley Court. Um, it sounds like a, a, a fantastic place to go to. You know, once you to to go and recover. Yeah, the ironic thing about my situation is that. This is the first injury I've ever had. I've never fractured a bone, broken a bone, chipped a nail, nothing. So I've never been in a rehab setting before. So I, I, I don't know what it's like to be in a civilian one. The only experience I had is a military one. Yeah. Now, in retrospect, looking back, absolutely amazing. Because I've met civilians in similar situations to me before. And, you know, I'm not criticising, but they don't get anywhere near the level of care that we get. We could do rehab Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, surrounded by professionals mm. who are just focused on us whereas in the civilian world you have to wait six weeks for a one-hour appointment you get a bit of one-on-one -on -one time then you go back and you got to sort yourself out it's i think it's so much harder for civilians to to do that so i didn't realize it at the time but yeah i was blessed i was in this environment surrounded by other wounded injured and sick servicemen and women military clinicians that got me they were on my wavelength they didn't quite get me because i'm a royal marine and they don't yeah. quite get that that, <laughs> that level of banter but yeah just looking back on it it was the perfect environment to be in and i honestly credit the speed of my recovery and other people's recovery to that environment and and that the programs that they create for us because they get it they know we want to be going hard and fast from day one yeah i mean completely agree with you i mean you know heavy court Head of, head and shoulders of uh, you know above everything else in this country in terms of you know what they were doing. Um, you, you went and spoke about you know transition and that mindset. You, I mean, it, not your. You know, it sounds like it went incredibly smoothly. There was no. I mean, we spoke, spoke of the people in the past who kind of had you know I'm alive binge. Um, you, you you didn't have any of that, did you? What's an I'm alive binge? Oh well, you know I think you know people who. And the best way I can describe it from, from speaking to previous guests, it's, you know, I've gone and survived an incident which you know, 20 years ago I wouldn't. I'm thankful to be alive. I'm going to live life to the full. Um, that sort of mentality and mindset. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely thankful and grateful. Um, and it's funny you say this because I bumped into one of my physios a couple of years after I'd left the military. I was speaking at the XL Centre in London and he was at a conference there. And he sat down with me and he'd left the military so he could talk to me about things that he couldn't previously. Hmm. And he said that he was my physio on my team in hospital and then later on in rehab. And I woke up and I was saying, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And everyone, I guess this is what you're talking about. They yeah. call it post-traumatic euphoria. Yeah. Where yeah. you do wake up grateful and you're like, right, I'm going to dominate the world now. And he said that everyone in my team 
was waiting for me to crash because they've yeah. seen that a million times before when you realize the limitations of your life and then you get depressed yeah he said but i never crashed he said i just kept <laughs> on going forward and figuring stuff out and moving on and um he then introduced me to a, a concept which i never heard of before which is a it was in the infancy of its like scientific work i guess if you like back in the day but it's called post-traumatic growth and it's when you come out the other side of a traumatic incident stronger than when you went mm. in and uh he said that's pretty much what you went through he said you never we thought you were going through post-traumatic euphoria mm. and you were going to crash and become depressed and hit the beer or whatever it was yeah because of the the culture of the military yeah or what it was back then and he said you just you didn't do it you just carried on and you figured things out and you looked at the the positives and you looked for the opportunities and you were grateful for being alive and the care and you just kept on going from strength to strength to strength and that's pretty much how my life's rolled out ever since then you know yeah. it's just focusing on what to be grateful for looking at the opportunities and then just taking them yeah so um from your recovery what made you then want to get involved with the invictus games because obviously that was starting to get up and running and everything what made you um what drew you to that initially absolutely nothing right i i I had this experience, and I don't know if this is across the board with disabled people or people that become disabled later in life or what, but all these people that I was meeting, you know, like one of the first questions they'd ask me is, when are you training for the Paralympics? And I'm like, what are you talking about? What, is that a prerequisite of being disabled? Do I have to be a Paralympian? <laughs> and prior to my injuries, mate, I had competed in full contact kickboxing, Muay Thai and I, I boxed in the Marines. I'd never done a hundred meter sprint or a long jump or a high jump or any of that stuff. It never interested me. Yeah. So I'm like, why would I want to do these as a disabled man? So, yeah. and my initial goal was to leave my wheelchair behind for mm. as many years as I could. But in 2016, I was sat at home in my office and I was, it was December and I was sketching out my goal list for the following year. And the Invictus Games was two years old at this point. Mm. And I sat down and I thought, 2017 is going to be my 10-year anniversary, right? Mm. What can I do to highlight 10 years of life and growth and, and progress that's going to be quite significant? Mm. And I, I thought to myself, I've never done sport before. Do you know what I mean? I, I trained in the gym still, mm. and I kept myself fit, but I've never competed. And I saw the Invictus Games, and I saw friends of mine go there and win medals and, and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, you know what? I'll give that a shot. Yeah. And I didn't even I didn't even understand disabled sport. I didn't know there's like club level, county mm. level, you know, and I just jumped straight in on the worldwide stage <laughs> thinking I'll give it a go and if I don't make it, I just jumped in and thought yeah. if I get selected, happy days. If I don't, you know, whatever, I'll, I'll try something else. And the short version is, mate, I, I applied, I made the team, got in there, selected my sports, um went out to canada 2017 yeah came back with two silvers and two bronzes but my whole mindset is you know i need the top prize the shiniest yeah. thing you know what i mean and <laughs> I, I came home and i just couldn't let it lie that that i hadn't won any gold medals so i dived straight into it the next year same routine same process but different mindset this like it was you you 
if you got in my way the second year, <laughs> it was going to be carnage. Because <laughs> I just, my whole, and I, I may have came across rude to some people and arrogant, but it was just focus. Yeah. There was, I didn't want to do it again. My whole plan had been to do it once and I'd failed in my mind to achieve what I set out to achieve the first year. And there was no way I was failing the second year. So again, I locked myself into a training program and just hammered myself. And fortunately, this time came back with four goals. Yeah, I mean, absolutely smashed it second time. I mean, you did so well from that. And then so you ticked off something else. What did you do then after that? So we're going into 2019. Um, what were your goals then in 2019? So the sports that I did, you know, rowing, swimming, hand cycling, you know, they're, they're one yeah. of the things I wanted to pursue as a, as a passion or yeah. profession. But when I came home, I got introduced to... Uh, I think this is what you're talking about, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yes. So, and my, my background was in martial arts. I, when I grew up, you know, I did what a lot of kids do, and I sampled it all. I did a bit of uh, judo, karate, um, taekwondo, and all these things. Yeah. And I thought, initially, I thought to myself, when I was asked to do it, I'm like, there's no way I can do this stuff. Do you know what I mean? I've got one arm. <laughs> and I had done, I had done Japanese jiu-jitsu when I was younger, but I didn't know that there was a difference between Japanese and Brazilian. Mm. But the guy who asked me to go train with him was a serving Royal Marines physical training instructor. He was a purple belt. He was a rehabilitation instructor. He was the head of the unarmed uh, combat cell within the Royal Marines. So I thought, okay, this guy is very highly qualified. Mm. I'll go and give it a shot. And from that first training session, I was just like, wow, this is, this is something I can do yeah. and I can, you know, excuse the pun, but earn my stripes yeah. through hard work and effort, not pity, which yeah. is what, you know, I thought a lot of disabled sports were back at the time. Mm. And I just got hooked, you know, because it's so adaptive, like. There are obviously textbook techniques and ways to do things, but everything can be adapted yeah. and, and modified to suit anybody. And that was the massive appeal to me. And I was learning things on the mat that was helping me in my life as a triple amputee. For example, you know, I never thought in my life I'd be able to choke somebody using my shoulder. You know what I mean? And <laughs> when I learned how to do it, then I would go out into the world. And whereas before, if I was carrying something with one hand, I was done because yeah. I've only got the one. I was using my shoulders to carry things and my little arm stump to carry things. And yeah. it just opened up another world for me outside of training as well. And that's what was so powerful about it for me. Oh, fantastic. I mean, we, we, you know, we see, you know, what goes on there and it looks absolutely brilliant. It looks like a really good way. It looks like another um, excellent way to help people. Um, and obviously it, it instills a mindset, which is a mindset that the military definitely had so it just seems so appealing um it definitely is a really kind of um it's just such a great idea and i mean it's a, a you know it, it's such an obvious idea as well so i'm surprised it took so long for people to actually go and and see it um because i like you said it seems like a a great thing do you know what i'll tell you what i'll say about brazilian jiu-jitsu as well mm. um compared to the other not just disabled sports that i've done but sports in general the thing that's different about BJJ is the community. Mm. 
Right, so I've come from a military background and there's a very strong brotherhood, mm. you know, and, and, and bond and camaraderie. And jiu-jitsu is the only other place I think I've experienced that outside the military, oh, where wow. people train together, they socialise together. Do you know what I mean? And it, it's bizarre. Like when I used to do kickboxing stuff, if you go down, you train, you finish, you go home, you won't see anyone until the next training session. Whereas now you, I've developed like another family, yeah, you know, and that was one of the big appealing things to me is the community and the camaraderie and all that outside of jujitsu. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's such a big thing when people are leaving the military, going onto Civvy Street. You know, the loss of identity and having to go and reintegrate yeah. with that world. So that seems like a, something so great to help with that transitional period. Um, Absolutely. It sounds absolutely, um, absolutely brilliant. I mean, we're almost up to date now with your life. So, I mean, what's going on at the moment then? So, in doing brilliant jiu-jitsu, what's next then? Um, I don't know, really, in, in terms of sports. I'm, I'm obviously going to continue to train in BJJ. My, my goal is to get to a black belt like everyone else. Um, well, my, it's not the end goal because that's um, it's just part of the journey, isn't it? It's going to be yeah. with me for life now, but... You know, I'd like to earn my black belt based on merit and, and yeah. skill. But outside of that, I'm, I'm just about to finish my second book now. Um, yes. Hopefully that's going to be done and released later this year. I, 12 months ago, or just, just later than that, after, just before COVID hit, mm. I signed a movie contract to turn my life story into a film. So that's going to be a heavy focus this year. Oh, amazing. And I'm just, I'm a trustee actually for the charity Reorg, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu charity. So that takes up a lot of my time. And I'm focusing more this year on business because mm. I just feel like over the last 10 years, all of the goals that I set, I've achieved like 90% of them. And they were, a lot of them were, I was going to say personal. I mean, the business mm. ones are personal as well, but what I'm trying to achieve as well as, and I'm not ashamed to say it, as well as earning mm. a lot of money, I want to kind of show other people that despite having one arm and, and no legs, the day and age we live in where you can run a, a business or multiple businesses from a smartphone yeah, and you can have conversations like this where we're not face-to-face, -face, I can speak to anyone, anytime, anywhere in the world. Yeah. The, the possibilities are limitless. And literally with the platforms we have, and this sounds so far-fetched but I, I believe this is a reality like if you if you're passionate about making jam right <laughs> you, you yeah. can start a youtube channel and social media channels called james's jam right yeah. and if you make enough content about it and you hit enough people who are passionate about jam you can monetize that and make a business from it right and you can earn income from your social media then you create products and services then you sell them to your client base and your fan base and your subscribers and i'm not you know i watch my my son and he watches these guys they play minecraft right yes online, <laughs> and they're making more money than top level ceos of some of the biggest companies in the world just doing what they love yeah and i honestly think that i'm not I'm not excluded from that as a disabled man on one hand. I can be in on that action, and this is what I want to do now. I want to create multiple businesses online that yeah. earn me a shed load of money. <laughs> not, not so I can go, oh, look at me, look how rich I am. I fly first class. But so I can say, look, 
I did it with one hand. You can do it as well. <laughs> just, just go and do it and live your life on your terms. Oh, brilliant. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Such a great mindset to have. Such a great mm-hmm. mindset to have. And I mean, I've got to go and mention your um, MBE that you got last year. I mean, incredible achievement. How do you find out about that? Because that must have been brilliant to be, you know, awarded that. It's such a high, um, you know, a cloud to get. Yeah, mate, it was awesome. Um, it's a little bit strange because I've spent my life since I was injured doing what I enjoy doing, mm. which is, you know, charity work, working with veterans and all that kind of stuff. So to be rewarded for it, it felt a bit strange. Yeah. But at the same time, really humbling because... Yeah, I'm, I'm just doing what I love. And this is, I think this is the key. I think there's a message in that, right? It's like, do what you love because you love it. Yeah. And then these cool things happen. Don't chase the cool things. Don't go, you know, don't think that's a goal is to to get an MBE. It's yeah. a byproduct of doing what you love and helping people. Yeah. And that's what I think for me personally is so cool about it. Oh, brilliant. I mean, I've got one question left and then... Um... And then I'm just going to ask you, Mark, you know, how people can get in contact with you and everything. So, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, my final question, Mark, is, you know, as a charity that um, helps military families, and we ask all our guests this, we want to know what does family mean to you? I mean, it's the foundation of everything, isn't it? You've, you've got, if you've got that, you know, we we're just talking about money just now, but if you've got that, a good solid family, who are all in sync then you're the richest man in the world you know and that comes in many forms that can be your wife your children it can be your military brothers and sisters it could be your brazilian jiu-jitsu family it could be your online community it, it could be whatever you know your yeah. family comes in many different forms um but when you've got that because we're all tribal people if you've got that then you're winning yeah. you know what i mean and and those are the the important things in life to to develop and, and foster those relationships and for me you know do what you can to, to support and help them oh brilliant mark well thank you so much i mean from everyone going and listening to this how they go about getting in contact with you and how they, will they go about following you and your journey so i'm everywhere um on all the social media channels my handle is the same it's at mark ormrod um i have the website markonward.com where plug one of my businesses is on there i've got a small merchandise business um i have my own podcast the no limits podcast it's on youtube and all the usual podcast platforms and i'm posting pretty much every day across the board in one form or another um so you know whatever your preferred medium is come find me Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you. thank you so much, Mike. And also for everyone going and listening, I'm going to put all those in the link in the description. So if you go onto the description, all the links for Mark's Instagram, his website, um, they'll all be on there. So if you want to go and follow him, just do that now. Um, and all I've got to say is, Mark, is thank you so much for, for t- today. It's been absolutely brilliant. Oh, mate, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. Oh, yeah, it's been absolutely fantastic, Mark. And just thank you, everyone, for going and listening to episode 17 of the Give Us Time podcast. Um, make sure, like I just said, to follow Mark on all his social media as well. Um, make sure to like and subscribe to the Give Us Time social media pages. Um, and thank you all so much for listening. So thank you very much for listening and uh, goodbye. <laughs>